this week on the Back Table Podcast. You know, I always say to the parents that tunnel-based surgery, palate surgery is tough, but I can only do half of what needs to be done. The surgery will make it better. It's very tough. The child will go through a very tough two weeks, as will the parents. Uh, that surgery without addressing weight will make things better, but only for a temporary period of time. So it's got to be a, you know, an agreement or an understanding between you and the family that you do half of it, they do the other half. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Backtable ENT podcast. I'm your host, Gopi Shaw, and I have my co-host here today, Ashley Agan. Hello there. And our very, very special guest, Dr. Ron Mitchell. He's not just special because he's my boss and trained me in fellowship, but because he's our division chief, has been a pioneer in pediatric sleep disorder breathing and sleep apnea, and has contributed to advancements in the management of pediatric OSA. Welcome to the show, Dr. Mitchell. Thank you for having me on the show. It's a pleasure. <laughs> um, I just wanted to first ask you to tell us a little bit about your practice um, and how uh, you became interested in the research and management of pediatric OSA. Sure. First of all, thank you for the, for the very kind introduction. My name is Ron Mitchell. I'm a pediatric otolaryngologist or ENT. I work in the Dallas area and I'm a, I work a, at UT Southwestern where I'm a professor of otolaryngology and pediatrics and I practice in downtown Dallas in Plano and uh, I also have an office in the THR facility uh, on Walnut Hill. I, I first started being interested in sleep apnea in children mostly as a result of uh, many parents bringing these children to my clinic, that there was a shift in, in about 20 years ago when I completed my, my fellowship to a bigger interest in sleep in children, airways, how the effect of poor sleep affects the children, uh, children during the day. And that has really kind of translated into a into work, into work that has been done both at ENT, pulmonology, urology, psychiatry, uh, and it has highlighted the importance of sleep in kids. Uh, we also, as otolaryngologists, we see a lot of children uh, primarily because they have problems with their tonsil and what we tonsils. And what we have seen over the last 20 years is the number one reason parents bring children uh, uh, to our clinic for tonsillar problems is because they're concerned that large tonsils are interfering with their sleep. And when a child doesn't sleep well, the whole family is upset. Uh, in terms of research, there's been a 20-year uh, period where we have gone from understanding very little about sleep uh, to sleep being a large part of our practice. So in terms of pediatric sleep apnea, you know, if there's pauses, you know, on a sleep study and the sleep study is positive, we tend to take our, take the patient's tonsils out. And you've been a part of many landmark studies, including, you know, the CHAT study and I've been part of many, many clinical practice guidelines on pediatric OSA. 
you know, based on the research and your clinical practice, what are some things that you feel like are still part of your practice that you do day-to-day in clinic and how you treat your patients? What are some pearls that everybody should kind of know? Yeah, sure. sure. So again, over the last uh, 20 years, we have gone from a period where we asked what is normal sleep in a child? And we moved away from uh, believing that, you know, if a child snores and and the uh, parents snore, then it's all normal and doesn't cause any problems. And we moved towards uh, realizing that uh, snoring is the hallmark of a condition uh, called obstructive sleep apnea, where uh, the child goes to sleep, the child stops breathing and pauses uh, during sleep, and that results in very poor interrupted sleep that then leads to behavioral problems uh, uh, during the day and can lead to poor school performance. So some of the uh, studies that uh, I've been involved in have, have been a multi-site and multi, uh, a, a kind of multidisciplinary approaches to managing uh, sleep in children. Uh, as uh, as Gopi has mentioned, uh, one of the biggest landmark studies is what we call the CHAT study, which looked at uh, children with sleep apnea and looked at what happens when we take their tonsils out versus what happens when we don't. It just uh, observe them for a few months and keep an eye on them and, and see how things develop without surgery. And, you know, we have shown that surgery is very helpful. Uh, surgery makes the child better very quickly, but there is a group of kids, especially the kids with very mild, uh, problems where a period of waiting and allowing the child to grow without any surgical intervention may be all the child needs. We have followed that study. So whenever we do uh, NIH uh, sponsored studies, we like very catchy phrases. So it used to be chat. Now we do PATS, P-A-T-A, <laughs> uh, which stands for Pediatric Adenotonsillectomy Study for Snore. So we are currently looking at children who have very mild uh, oh, uh, obstructive sleep apnea, and we are looking at who needs surgery, who does not need surgery, what happens to them after a year in terms of behavior, in terms of uh, sleep, in terms of quality of life, and comparing those who do have surgery to those who don't have surgery. It, it's been... You know, large-scale studies that are done in, you know, five, six, seven institutions all over the country are very labor-intensive, they, they're expensive, they require a lot of personnel, and we are at the tail end of the PET study. Now, if COVID did not happen, we would have finished the PET study, but unfortunately, uh, COVID has interfered our, uh, in our lives in many ways, including with pets. Uh, but we hope that a year from now, we will have enough data to say uh, in those children who have mild sleep apnea, who should have surgery, who should not, who should have a sleep study and who should not, which I think will be very, very helpful to both uh, parents and physicians in terms of directing our practice. I agree. I think that will be super helpful. 
What, can you talk about what observation looks like for those patients who you decide to observe and wait on surgery? What, what does the follow-up look like and how do you manage yeah. that? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, I mean that's, that's a great question because sometimes people believe that observation means you say goodbye to the parent and you never see them again and uh, you hope <laughs> it gets better. And if it doesn't get better, show it. Come back to clinic. That's not, not what we mean by observation. And observation may be more intensive in terms of what you do in clinic than, than surgical uh, uh, intervention. So by observation, what we have done in the study is we have, we have allowed each site to treat these kids in what, uh, uh, with whatever is the standard of care in that site. So what that means is a group of kids under the observation umbrella uh, receive no treatment other than monthly phone calls to see how they're doing. There are other children who uh, received a nasal steroid spray. Some received saline. Uh, some have received monolucus, uh, especially if they have asthma. So we are talking about the wide spectrum of non-surgical intervention. This will allow us at a later stage to see um, if medical therapies vary to any great extent, as well as saying, how does medicine or observation compare to surgical inter uh, intervention? Dr. Mitchell, in your clinic, for the kids that you observe, when do you follow back up in clinic? And then for that observation uh, group, how, who do you offer the Nasonex and the Montelocast to versus, you know, just nothing at all. Yes. So many of the, uh, again, over a period of many years and with higher a uh, realization of sleep problems in kids being very common, uh, I am increasingly seeing kids who are already on some type of medication. The challenge I think for all of us is that they've been started on a medicine, but they haven't used it a whole lot. So often what I'm seeing clinic is when you ask the parents, have you used a nasal steroid spray? Yes. How often have you used it twice and then stopped? Uh, we want, so, so I encourage the parents to use it for six to eight weeks. Um, I, I myself, they're actually very rarely, uh, start them on a uh, monolucus and I, I normally defer to the pulmonologist. But again, I see a fair number who already have been started off. In the audience, the, the uh, people listening to uh, to this may be aware that there has been concern about uh, monolucus being used, especially in older kids, and affecting mood. And there's been some concern that they can be they can lead to suicidal thoughts, and so on. So I, I I tend to shy away from it. But maybe we should all be more aggressive medication. Uh, when do I observe them without intervention? It's when, when the parent tells me that they just do not think the child will tolerate any medication. Uh, uh, sprays in the nose uh, tend to be effective after the age of four or five and tend to be very ineffective below that age. Occasionally, you'll see a kid where the kid just loves it and uses it and the parent is there. <laughs> But, but, you know, more often than not, it doesn't happen to the younger kids. 
you know, if it seems or if the kid has some behavioral problems, I'm thinking particularly about autistic kids or some kids with Down syndrome, you may not be able to, uh, to use any medication. And in those kids, uh, you may want to see them in six to eight weeks and ask the parent to observe the kids. You know, we live in a, in an era where many, if not all parents have, uh, uh, have phones, they can always, you know, what I always tell them is go into the child's room at night, an hour or two after the child has gone to bed and take a video clip and bring it to me and let's look at it together. That's always a good, a good way of assessing how the kid is doing. Uh, but yeah, I think it's fair to see them again after two months. And do you repeat the sleep study in like a year or how do you make that decision? Yeah. So, so I, I think the first question is probably when do we get a sleep study? And uh, for the purposes of our study, they all, as an entry criteria, they all get a sleep study. In many kids with mild symptoms or, sh or a short history, I, I don't go ahead and get a sleep study uh, at the beginning. I will actually not get a sleep study send them out with, uh, with treatment, see them again. Now, again, at that point, when do we get a sleep study? Um, you know, when the child has, is a high risk for surgery. And by that, I mean, uh, the kids who have a lot of comorbidities, uh, down syndrome or uh, significant obesity, craniofacial problems, neuromuscular disease. We also get sleep studies when a child, uh, um, you know, has very small tonsils or adenoids and the symptoms don't seem to, to go with what we see on examination. Or sometimes the parent just wants a confirmation of the diagnosis. And I think that's a perfectly good reason uh, to get a sleep study. But we also need to appreciate that we would not be able to get a sleep study in every child who snores. We need to be selective in it. And we need to select those kids who will benefit most from a sleep study, which will help us in terms of the decision-making and the management of that kid if they do go ahead with surgery. I will rarely get two sleep studies after a period of observation because they tend to be very similar. And we should go by symptoms and quality of life. That makes sense. So if the mom comes in, mom or dad uh, comes in and it looks like the, they have a video where the patient is continuing to have um, sleep disorder, breathing or obstruction, and there's concern for that. And you already know that there's mild obstructive sleep apnea, then you might start thinking more about surgery. Is that yeah, right? right? So, so I would like to see a minimum of three months of symptoms. Um, I would like to see an attempt at treating it medically if possible. And I would like to confirm that the child has both nighttime and daytime symptoms. So it's not simply that the child snores, but there are some consequences to it. So does the child wake up tired? Does the child, uh, it, does the child have attention or hyperactivity problems? You know, is the child basically grumpy? You know, all parents know what that means. Yeah. Uh, we were, Ashley and I were talking about this. How often do you have a negative sleep study, but there's some snoring and concern for attention and two plus tonsils? How do you know 
you know, is a TNA appropriate in those kids, not? So, 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 so this is what we are actually stopping the pet study. It's exactly this chart. Uh, so one of the issues that I always discuss with the parents is if we do get a sleep study and it, show, it shows that the condition is very mild, are you willing and happy to observe the child? If they tell you that whatever the sleep study shows, I want a tonsillectomy because <laughs> the child's day-to-day -day life is affected significantly by this, there's really no reason to get the sleep study. Uh, so in the situation, so the first thing to say, avoid the situation where the parent wants to proceed with surgery regardless of a sleep study. But we do occasionally have uh, children who uh, were sent for a sleep study either by the pulmonologist or the PCP, and they're seeing us with the sleep study, and the sleep study is very mild. And I think that this, this is a situation that, first of all, after the PET study, we will know a lot more about what we should do because we will have data comparing the child who has surgery to the child who has uh, been observed for a year. Uh, but in the absence of that data, I think this is an area that really lends itself to shared decision-making. And, and what I mean by that is you have to sit down with the parent. You have to um, uh, talk about the risks and benefits of the surgery versus the risks and benefits of observation. If the child is having a lot of problems, we know that a sleep study that shows very mild OSA or no OSA does not mean that the child doesn't have behavioral problems or quality of life issues. It just, it makes it uh, less likely that you need to do surgery immediately, but that child may benefit from the surgery as much as the child who has severe OSA in terms of behavior and all good life. Mm -hmm. Do you Evan. feel that with COVID, you're more or less likely to get a sleep study in these kids? Yeah, so it's interesting. We, we went through a period where the sleep study, and then the sleep lab was not working. We didn't do any sleep studies for over two months. And there was a lot of demand from parents who wanted sleep studies, who were disappointed that uh, we couldn't do the sleep study, especially the ones who were already scheduled and had to be uh, postponed. Since we opened the lab, which was kind of like at the end of May, there are many parents who now say to us, we're too worried to come to the lab for a sleep study. So we've gone from turning people away to trying to convince them that the sleep lab is a safe environment. Right. Uh, so do I send people more or less? I actually do send fewer people for a sleep study because, because the concerns about distancing, the need for a test before a sleep study it means that we don't do as many sleep studies as we used to. So the bottlenecked get one uh, has increased, and I, I do uh, I do send fewer kids, and and I I probably spend more time with the parents talking about what is the most likely finding of the sleep study, and is there a way to avoid it? And that way, we avoid 
having to test the child, keep the child for a, a whole night in the lab, etc. We also are not currently doing any CPAP titrations. There are some places around the country that have started to, but, but that is considered a much higher risk situation. We, we currently are not doing that. We may start it next month. Is there a role for home sleep studies, particularly for patients who are concerned or worried to go to the sleep lab? I mean, that's, we, we do home sleep studies quite a bit, I would say, in adults. I don't know if, if it's yeah. as feasible in children, but is that something that you're using more? Yeah, so we do not use any home sleep studies, okay? Uh, the adult and the pediatric population in that respect is very, very different. Uh, so in the adult world, in many patients, you need a home sleep study before you can even consider an in-lab study. That's not the case in children. Now, we know that in children, getting a home study is difficult. Uh, the data comparing uh, home sleep studies to in-lab sleep studies is actually very disappointing. We do occasionally do simple oximetry studies. And what we're looking for is just a screen to look at the very severe OSA. We do understand that a normal oximeter still may mean that the child has sleep apnea, but it probably excludes the very severe sleep apnea. But again, we don't do a whole lot of them. Uh, there are, because in children, the first line management is tonsillectomy and adnoidectomy, as opposed to the adult world where the first line is CPAP and BiPAP. Um, our need for sleep studies is actually not as great as it is in the adult population. Mm -hmm. but, but, but that may change in the next year. There is, there's quite a bit of work on... Um, you know, what we call abbreviate studies that may, that we may be able to get at home. There's always a question, how does a home sleep study compare to a video recording and how does that compare uh, to a full night uh, a polysomnography? And I think in children, the jury's out as the usefulness of it. Yeah. To me, the adolescent group has always been an interesting group to me because I just you know, we have our pediatric guidelines for under eight, 18 and under or under 18. And yet you are adolescents, you know, between sometimes as early as 12, but really 13, 14 to 17, you know, at what point, you know, some of them have already hit puberty. They've had some weight gain. How do you know when, you know, you're 16, 17 year old to treat them like an adult in terms of severity versus, you know, a pediatric patient? You know, just a, uh, some general observations. I think the minute they hit 16, they're adults. And I think most, most specialists would agree with that. Right. Uh, when they're under the age of 12, I think they're children. And I, again, I think most people, the problem is that kind of 12 to 16. And some of it depends on the child themselves, which we know, you know, as we know, a 13 year old can be six foot or a 13 year old can, can look like a 10. Uh, I think that plays a big, uh, a big, but it is, it's something that I would encourage people 
to talk to the people in the sleep lab and they will give you a, a good idea. But right. um, as we, the closer you are to 16, the more adult-like they are, the closer you are to 12, the more pediatric-like uh, they are. And in between, it can be tough. There's no question about it. You know, you, you get something that in the adult world, um, is moderate, but in the pediatric world is very severe or right. in the adult world, it doesn't even qualify as, as OSA, but in the pediatric world, it's actually very significant. Right. And they, you know, again, we don't, we, we have, we have actually published a number of papers from our, our institution about adolescence, uh, and it's, it's a, it's a tough crowd. I, I, I share your, your challenge in, in who should you deal with as a child and who should you deal with as an adult. I mean, some of them, you know, they have the three plus tonsils and HIV 10 is still mild in an adult and severe in a kid. And so that's an easier, you know, patient population to maybe counsel or not for surgery to. That being said, you know, we see some kids, you know, younger kids have four plus tonsils and have, you know, very mild or almost negative sleep studies. Does tonsil size matter? So, so tonsil size matters in aggregate, and I'll tell you what I mean by that, but it's not a predictor of severity of OSA. So the big problem with looking at tonsil size is most kids in that kind of four to eight or four to 10 age group have two plus or three plus tonsils. Right. So how do we distinguish between a two plus or three plus, uh, two people can look at the same mouth and some will say this and some will say that, um, they're very large tonsils, you know, the kind of four plus tonsils. If you, if you look on aggregate, if you look at a, a cohort of children with four plus tonsils, a, are they more likely to have OSA and are they more likely to have more severe OSA? The answer is yes, but there are outliers. So there are kids with four plus tonsils who have no OSA. There are kids with one plus tonsils who have moderate OSA. Right. So basically, and, and we also have to remember when we gauge tonsil size, we're using an instrument that was used in the 17th century, a tongue depressor. Right. Yeah, so we all look in the mouth and we, we kind of use a very, a very old instrument to, sometimes it's difficult to look in the mouth, sometimes it's difficult to, the, the kid gags and so on. And it may be that what you see as two, maybe a three, et cetera. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, all the whole, large tonsils mean a higher likelihood of OSA, small tonsils mean a less likelihood of OSA, but in the specific kid, it doesn't tell you anything. Yeah. And do you feel like, do you feel like that there is more OSA in children now or that we just, that it's always been there and we just notice it now because we look for it and we test for it now? Uh, and, and, uh, you know, that's a very good question. And, uh, you know, <laughs> the, 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 the history of tonsillectomy, uh, goes something like this in the 1950s in the U S we were doing more tonsillectomies than we do now. 
the population has more than doubled. Okay. Uh, in effect, in New York, on the east side of New York, there was a tonsillectomy husked. So doing a tonsillectomy in kids was very common. You know, uh, there, uh, you know, children uh, were put to sleep for some other surgery. They took their tonsils out. And sometimes they put them to sleep for tonsillectomy to make them healthier. <laughs> Years have gone by, antibiotics have been, have improved, and the kind of the sick kid with constant tonsillitis is less common. So we're doing fewer tonsillectomies. Uh, and I think two things have happened. Uh, firstly, more kids are, are getting to school age with their tonsils. Uh, and there's a bigger awareness. And I think both of those have contributed to, to us seeing more kids with large toxins. Now there is in the, if we look at the literature, the science of it, you know, some people say that more viral infections and particularly RSV leads to tonsillar hypertrophy. And we have seen an increase in RSV in kids and that over time uh, leads to, um, to bigger tonsils. Another theory is that there's more allergy in the community. A quarter of the kids have allergy. Uh, when kids get more allergic type disease, the lymphoid tissue swells up and you get bigger tonsils. I don't think anyone has, has proven any of that. Yeah. I, I think it's a combination. The bottom line, it's a combination of doing fewer tonsillectomies at a younger age and a greater awareness that a tonsillectomy, that, that, that tonsillectomy is highly effective for sleep-related problems uh, and, and sleep-related problems cause a lot of problems at home and at school. And the combination of that has led to an increase. So currently in most, certainly in academic programs, 90% uh, of the kids we do a tonsillectomy uh, on have sleep disordered breathing and tonsillar hypertrophy. And if you look at more recently, uh, how many tonsillectomies are done in the 1970s versus now, it's actually doubled. So we did, we used to do a huge number for infection that went down by 75%. And then it's been climbing again as there's been awareness of sleep related problems. Interesting. Next question is for patients who have obstructive sleep apnea and they have tonsillectomy and adenoidectomy. And then in that post-op sleep study still have OSA. So what do we do with those patients? What's next? Is, is CPAP feasible? Is there more surgery that can be done? Okay, thank you. And, and, and this is, a, you know, actually, this is an increasing part of my practice. You know, I, I, I always say that uh, the best way to cure OSA is see the child, don't do a sleep study, take the tonsils out and never see them again and never contact them again. <laughs> and then you, then you cure all of them. Because, <laughs> you know, you, you congratulate yourself and we, right. that was a joke. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, what we are increasingly realizing is there is a proportion of children who after a tonsillectomy and adenoidectomy continue to have problems. So how do you identify them? How do you deal with them? 
who are they, what, what's their demographics, what's their comorbidities. It's a big subject. So we, in, in our uh, department, every child who has a tonsillectomy actually gets a phone call with a number of standard questions and there are yes, no answers. Uh, you know, things like, does your ch child still snore? Does your child, uh, um, have things improved significantly in terms of behavior and so on. And if they answer that things haven't improved, we uh, offer them a clinic follow-up appointment. In terms of who are the, uh, children who continue to have problems after a tonsillectomy, they come under kind of well-defined categories and how you manage each one of them uh, is a bit different. You know, at, you know, at one end of this kind of spectrum of kids with what we call persistent sleep apnea are the kids who are normal weight, have had their tonsils and adenoids out, have probably improved, but continue to have problems. Uh, so in these kids, most of the problem I, I tell people is in the nose. So these kids need to come back to clinic. They need to be examined. A proportion of them may have a adenoid regrowth or the adenoids have not been removed uh, sufficiently and there isn't enough space at the back of the nose. Uh, allergies are also very common in these kids. And, and again, in our department, we have an otolaryngologist who specializes in allergies. Uh, but think in terms of allergies, think in terms of using a, a, a steroid spray in, ter in terms of using a monoleucanus. And I, I think that if possible, these kids should undergo a, a flexible scope in clinic to also look at the larynx and make sure that they don't have what we call late onset laryngomalacia, where you see a, the superglottic structures actually collapse on themselves and, a, and cause an obstruction at the laryngeal level. But most of these kids, the problem is in the nose. A, and, you know, some of them will need to go back to the operating room uh, to have their adenoids removed. Some may benefit from a shrinking of their terebinates. And, and again, it's, it's, it's a fairly uh, significant cohort of kids. For that, for that group, do you, do you have any tricks on getting kids to tolerate nasal sprays? I, th I feel like when I talk about nasal steroid sprays, patients or, or parents will frequently look at me like, you know, it's crazy to think that their child would be able to tolerate a nasal I spray. A, yeah, I keep a very straight face. <laughs> but I tell, yeah. them to use the, I tell them to use like a saline mist even to start and like spray their arms so they're not scared of, you know, having the bottle and then spray close to their face just with a mist like saline mist and to the point where they can tolerate the mist in their nose and I, I tell them it's not going to happen in one night it might take a week and then slowly once they get comfortable with that you know try the nasonex because uh, you know I see this a lot not just for we all see it a lot not just for sleep disordered breathing OSA but you know that runny nose sign quote sinusitis kid as well the allergy kid so and, 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 what do you do, Dr. And, and mentioning that what we're trying to do is avoid further surgery <laughs> using a nasal spray tough as it may be in young kids it's still preferable to doing a second surgery for the kid but <laughs> but you know in these children CPAP has a very limited role most of the sleep apnea is mild it's unusual that that kid 
uh, will need any kind of pap therapy. And, and, you know, the other thing is that we always have to remember that CPAP in kids, uh, other than compliance is difficult, it also may affect facial growth. And we could end up in a situation where uh, a child is using CPAP that affects facial growth and leads to adult OSA. You know, in those, in the normal weight child, I would heavily encourage avoiding CPAP letting the child grow, using sprays, allergy evaluation. Uh, if the adenoids had regrown, consider removing them. C can the child benefit from shrinking the turbinates? And look at the lengths. Th th then we have the two kind of tough categories here. So we have seen a, a worldwide increase in pediatric obesity. Children who are obese are more likely to have OSA. They're more likely to have severe OSA and they're more likely to have persistent OSA after TNA. And of course, the, the solution uh, seems very simple. If, if a child is overweight or obese, you lose weight, snoring gets better. And, and even a 10% loss of weight has a, you know, a significant uh, effect on their sleep and general well-being. And, and in some kids who are overweight, what we can tell the parents is don't even aim for a weight reduction, aim for the child being the same weight a year from now. And I think that's a good kind of goal in these kids. So in those kids, again, they need a flexible scope through their nose, make sure the adenoids are not regrown. Uh, in obese kids, get the involvement of a nutritionist, or if you in your own hospital have the uh, you know, weight management clinic, uh, think about that again, follow the child up, don't discharge and never see them again. Um, but these kids, if they have moderate to severe OSA, CPAP should be considered. And, and there is a problem here that there's increasing evidence that tonsillectomy may make this, these group of kids gain more weight. And some people kind of jokingly say that as they sleep more, they have more energy to eat more, uh, but it is a consult. Um, again, CPAP may make their OSA better, make them more energetic and they eat more and put on more weight. So that needs to be discussed with the family. Uh, the third group of kids are the children with craniofacial and genetic problems, the neuromuscular kids etc. But the main, the main child in that category are the Down syndrome kids. So Down syndrome, 70 to 80% of them have OSA. You take the tonsils out, even the ones who have a normal sleep study after a tonsillectomy may in years to come go back to having OSA, either because of tone issue or weight or a, a combination of both. Uh, these are the toughest kids we deal with. I know that uh, Gopi deals with yeah. them as much as I do, and, and they're not easy. And if you take the extreme of those kids, these are the kids who have severe sleep apnea after tonsillectomy. Yeah. They do not tolerate CPAP because of behavioral problems and compliance issues. 
And what do we do with those kids? You know, this is an area that has changed significantly in terms of what, what, how we investigate and what we do. So in these children, you know, we, again, we want to do a flexible scope in the clinic, make sure there's no adenoid regrowth, make sure that the airway looks normal. And we would, we routinely will send them for a CPAP trial. Uh, now, of all the kids with Down syndrome, half of them do very well if you have a sleep lab where the people are engaged in uh, maximizing compliance. If it's simply giving the machine to the family, your success rate will be less than 5%. But when, you know, we have a sleep psychologist, we have someone engaged in CPAP, um, uh, you know, we have a very kind of effective multidisciplinary approach to this, but the kids who have persistent OSA on CPAP, about half of them will either not use it sufficiently every night or will just not tolerate it at all. And, and, you know, we also have to remember that how, how do we define good toleration CPAP? We, we define it as four to five hours per night, five days a year five days a week. So, so at least 50% of the time that they're asleep. This is a, so, so, you know, if I ask Ashley and, and Gopi, how do you, how would you feel with four to five hours a night, five nights a week? I'd be right like tired and cranky. And, and, and that's, that's how they, that's 50, <laughs> and that's 50% who are successful. Okay. Then there's everyone else. You know, these kids are a challenge because, you know, you want, you know, in the non-COVID era, you want to, as much as you can, mainstream them at school. You want them to get an education. You want to maximize their speech and uh, their development and their general well-being. And on the other hand, we are defining good sleep as four to five hours, five times a day. So, you know, this is an area. So we, in, in the ones who fail CPAP, um, we will consider what we call a, a, a sleep MRI or a cine MRI where we uh, sedate them, uh, put them under anesthesia, get an MRI scan, uh, and look at uh, you know the the sites of the airway that are most likely to lead to airway constriction. And in Down uh, kids, ninety percent of it is the tongue base. Um, and these are the kids where we can do a fair amount for, uh, now it does not mean that you're going to move a child from severe OSA to no OSA, but you may move a child from severe OSA to mild OSA. They don't need CPAP, uh, and you can work on other issues such as, uh, uh, you know, trying to at least minimize any weight gain. Um. We also, uh, in, in some of them considered palate surgery, in addition to tongue-based surgery, depending on what we find on the CD MRI, usually on the day of surgery, uh, we also do a, a drug induced sleep endoscopy, which is basically using a, 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 a flexible instrument through the nose, um, and looking at, uh, you know, at any obstruction at the level of the palate, tongue base, and looking at the airway. 
and that and that directs what we do for them. And the most exciting part of this is as we look forward, um, uh, we are beginning to do hypoglossal to uh, insert hypoglossal nerve stimulators in these kids, and that's probably the most encouraging and uh, forward-looking uh, way to, to manage these kids. Um, because, you know, with, with the nerve stimulator, you know, essentially when it works, the parent can sit in their own bed and with a dial increase or decrease the amount of stimulation the kid has. It's, it's a pretty amazing device. We need more data. We need FDA approval uh, and so on. But I can see that in the next 10 years, how we deal with children with Down syndrome is going to be transformed. Uh, Down syndrome and OSA uh, will be transformed, but it's not suitable for every child. How, ma- how often do you feel that after a lingual tonsillectomy or tongue-based reduction that there's a rebound or recurrence of severe OSA. So you've got the patient down from, you know, they've had the TNA, they still have severe OSA. You did the advanced sleep surgery. It's improved. And then a year or two later, we're right back at severe. And, you know, how, how yeah. do you, does that, do you see that often? Yeah. So, so based on, so, you know, so we, we keep some data, we follow uh, some of the, you know, not all of these children because some are lost follow up, but the, the main issue seems to be weight. Right. So it, in, in the child who, uh, and, you know, just to kind of mention anecdotes, I, I remember one child who, uh, came to see me with, with the mother, the child was overweight. Uh, significantly overweight. Um, and the mother basically said that they're in this situation where the child is so grumpy and badly behaved and so on, that if she sends the kid to school, they call her up and send the kid back home because the kid hits other people. All all the kid wants to do is sleep and eat and they get heavier. So. That child did undergo tongue-based reduction. The mother really was very engaged, getting the child moving, bought the kid a bike, bought the whole family a bike. The kid lost 30 pounds. And I still see the kid because the kid actually has ear tubes, T-tubes that I follow the kid up for. And the kid never had the OSA again. we We did two sleep studies. The challenge is that when they gain weight, which I think inevitably they do as adolescents, even when you start from severe, you take the tonsils out, you make them mild, you wait, they gain weight. You're again, you do a tongue base, they gain weight and you're going to go back to severe OSA. Um, and the ones who don't tolerate CPAP at all are extremely tough. But yes, we do see it and, you know, it's, you know, you need to talk to the family about wait, 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 wait. But I I have that conversation, you know, Ashley and I were talking about this. It's not something that, you know, I did a lot of in my training. It's not something that I feel that comfortable. I mean, addressing, I, you know, what, how do you, how do you discuss it? How do you, you know, I always say to the parents that 
tongue-based surgery, palate surgery is tough, but I can only do half of what needs to be done. The surgery will make it better. It's very tough. The child will go through a very tough two weeks, as will the parents. Uh, that surgery without addressing weight will make things better, but only for a temporary period of time. So it's got to be a, you know, an agreement or an understanding between you and the family that you do half of it, they do the other half. And if they're unsuccessful, it may be that they just cannot. The child will get better, but probably will relapse into where they were. And it may give them a year or two, and maybe that's okay. Uh, maybe things will change over a year or two, but it's, and, and I do discuss with every one of them a tracheostomy. And ultimately, we do have a procedure that takes obstructive sleep apnea away in these kids, and it's called tracheostomy. And I tell them if they, you know, they have severe OSA, we have done tongue-based surgery, uh, the cardiologist is very concerned about the effect of severe OSA uh, uh, on the heart. The next option is a tracheostomy, although it comes, as we know, with a lot of issues. Right. And as one of our partners put it, you know, we talk about smoking as a risk factor for cancer. So weight, you know, reduction and weight gain should be in the discussion for OSA. Yeah, and, and, and I discuss with every single one. Right. But, you know, when a Down syndrome kid is obese, the chances of that kid becoming normal weight is very small. Mm -hmm. And then one last thing, you know, not everybody has uh, the ability to do CINI-MRI. You need a radiology protocol. You need radiologists that know how to read a CINI-MRI. You need anesthesiologists that feel comfortable sedating um, and spontaneously breathing a child with severe OSA. In terms of CINI and a DICE, do you, is in those, do you feel like an MRI is better than a DICE? Do you think the DICE or the drug induced sleep endoscopy by itself was sufficient? I think they're complementary. I think you can, if you're in a place where a CINI MRI uh, just can't be done, which was the case in Dallas 10 years ago. Right. Uh, and, and, and it comes under two categories. Uh, in some places, they just don't have it as an option. You know? uh, yeah. There are also some places around the country that will tell you they do CINI MRIs, but they fail about 50% of the time. So as you mentioned, it's anesthesia. Uh, you know, CINI MRI should not be done by the anesthesiologist who is available and should not be read by the radiologist who is available. Yeah. It's, it's a very specialized area. There needs to be a team of radiologists who are really devoted to it. And, you know, I can tell you in the last 12 months, we, we have not failed to get a CINI-MRI in a single child. Yeah. Um, you know, it's, uh, you know, it, and it should be 90% successful, um, uh, but it does require it. It's a team effort. It's a lot of, you know, managing the airway in a child with severe OSA in a way that you don't kind of 
the child is spontaneously breathing. You get an MRI with a, with, without a lot of uh, movement and interference, so you can actually interpret it. But semi-MRIs are the, by far the best investigation uh, to look at the tongue base. Uh, DICE is a very effective investigation to look at the palate uh, and look uh, lower the airway. Uh, they do complement each other, but you can function as an OSA, as a pediatric OSA surgeon with dice. Cines are nice, and, and certainly there are times when on a dice you will not see so much a tongue problem, or it may actually overemphasize the tongue-based problem. Uh, and the cine conflict with it. Cines are not as good for looking at the palate. I think, uh, I think you benefit enormously from actually putting a scope and looking at how the palate constricts. You know, there is a lot of uh, interest in the dental and orthodontic community about the uh, relationship between uh, OSA, facial growth, dental health, orthodontics. And uh, prior to the COVID area where conferences were, uh, uh, where conferences were more common, it, it was a very, you know, it's a hot topic. And I think otolaryngologists need to be aware of uh, that uh, there's a lot of interest that, you know, nasal obstruction can lead to facial growth issues, there is some concern that in the child where you take the tonsils and adenoids out, uh, but they haven't been breathing through their nose for several years, they continue to be mouth breathers and that affects the growth of the mid face, uh, the jaw, etc. And I think we're going to hear a lot more in that uh, area. And this concern that the child doesn't breathe through their nose becomes the uh, 10 or 20% of adults who are not obese, but still have OSA because of crowding of their oral nasopharynx. And, and I think we're going to hear a lot more about that, but there are certainly orthodontists who are beginning to say, I do not want to start treating the child's teeth uh, when the, when the tonsils are three plus or four plus. And suddenly we are as otolaryngologists seeing many more referrals from our dental colleagues. And I think, uh, we should be aware that they are concerned about, uh, nasal breathing. There's, there's a saying in the dental, uh, world that you should breathe through your nose and you should eat your, uh, through your mouth. And when that reverses, you have a problem. And I would, I would encourage otolaryngologists to partner with the dental world. Cause I can tell you that when I go to meetings and they ask me to speak about the subjects, some of them feel very uh, nearly angry that they're worried about the tonsils. They're worried about nasal breathing. They send them to an otolaryngologist who sends them back saying it's not much of a problem. And. You know, I, I, I think otolaryngologists shouldn't uh, have a working relationship with dentists. And remember, dentists are looking at the oropharynx every time they look at the child's mouth. 
And when the child is not breathing well, their mouth breathing, they, the tonsils seem to be obstructive and they're sending them to you. Um, I think communicating with the dentist is a good thing. Yeah, I agree. I think we should definitely be at the seat, uh, at the table. I mean, what I do is I get the dentist's name and I send them a copy of my letter. Yeah. I don't want to tell you how many times they will get back to me saying how grateful they are that I communicate with. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And, and you, you know, the, the only other thing to, to kind of mention is, uh, you know, during these kind of COVID times, you know, it'll be interesting where sleep medicine lands itself. And what I mean by that is, you know, we're not as able to do sleep studies as we used to be because of requirements for distancing and testing and so on. We never had enough pediatric sleep labs to satisfy demand. And we could see a time when, you know, it's just going to get worse. You know, we're fortunate in Dallas that, you know, we actually have the largest pediatric sleep lab in the U.S. here, but we're down to half the capacity and the demand is increasing. You know, we live in interesting times, that's for sure. Wow. That is so great. What a, what an awesome conversation. I feel like, I feel like I've learned so much. Thank, thank you, Dr. Mitchell for thank you, Dr. Mitchell. the time. This was a great conversation. I feel like we could go for another hour. So I hope you'll come back and talk to us again. Well, thank you. It's a pleasure. And uh, you are, um, a, you're very impressive hosts. <laughs> and he doesn't say that just because he's our boss. <laughs> I, I like actually the combo. Actually. I, I, I think it adds something to it. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you to all our listeners. We encourage you to follow us on social media or on Twitter at at underscore Backtable ENT. Subscribe, rate. We look forward to seeing you back here next time. And reach out to us. We'd love new topics, speakers. Take care.